Uh, we're back in Revelation chapter 2. What we're doing is we're doing a, a short mini-series, uh, relatively short in, in terms of some of the series we've done. Uh, we're looking at these two chapters in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3. And these, of course, are a series of seven letters that were sent by the Lord himself through the Apostle John to a group of seven churches that were near where John was imprisoned as he was writing the, the book of, <clears throat> excuse me, the book of Revelation. And uh, these letters are all related to the imagery of the vision that the Lord gave to John in chapter one, a vision of himself being revealed as the heavenly high priest who it was, was serving the Lord in the temple of God, a heavenly temple, and was doing what the high priest ordinarily did in the temple of God in the Old Testament, which was maintaining the lampstands in the temple. However, in this case, the lampstands are revealed to be symbols of the seven churches. So there are a total of seven lampstands, there are seven churches, and the high priest's responsibility on a daily basis in the temple, remember, was to uh, do two things. He was to evaluate the lamps on the lampstand and fill them with oil according to their needs so that they would have fuel to burn so that they could shine the light that they were called to shine in the world around them. And then he was also to trim the wicks, which would cause the lamps to burn as brightly as they should. So those two elements of filling and trimming uh, we are seeing a correspondence to how the Lord speaks to these seven churches. He speaks to each one according to their individual circumstance. He speaks to each one words of encouragement. And that has to do with the Lord filling up the church with encouraging words. And he speaks to them uh, corrective words according to their circumstance as they needed correction. And he is trimming away things that are not healthy within the life of those churches. So um, we are uh, right up to the uh, fourth of these seven churches now. And this is at the end of chapter uh, two in verse 18. This is the letter to the church in Thyatira. So let me go ahead and read this letter. It's, um, it's the longest of the seven letters to the seven churches, which is interesting because this city, the city of Thyatira of the seven cities was the least prominent, uh, the least significant of the cities, but uh, it's to this one that the Lord wrote the longest of the letters. So uh, let me read through, starting from verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But... I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star he who has an ear, 
let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I've emphasized in our study through all of the first three letters so far, and this will remain true for the remaining uh, churches and the letters to them uh, for all of chapter three, is that there is a similarity to all of these letters. They follow a similar pattern, and there's some similar element in each one of them. And the last verse here in chapter two is one of the more significant similar elements. And let me just reread that last verse, 29. The Lord says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, he who has an ear, let him hear, is just one of the, the ways that the Lord commonly communicated, even during his teaching ministry on earth, during the three years of his public ministry, is basically saying, because with you know a few exceptions, uh, everyone is is a functional person with physical ears. But here we're talking about if you have an ear to hear beyond just natural perspective, if you have an ear to hear, here in this case, what the Spirit is saying, what, what the Holy Spirit is, is speaking and communicating. And in this case, of course, in these two chapters, in these seven letters, the Spirit is communicating to the churches of God, and he has an important message to speak to each individual church according to their circumstances, but they're, they're meant to be instructive to all true churches. So we're reading through these seven letters, not expecting to find identical similarity between us and them on every point, but what we're looking for is, what is the Spirit saying to this church that we can learn from and even if our circumstance is not identical to theirs or even greatly similar to theirs, there are lessons for us to learn so that we can be safeguarded from falling into the kind of pitfalls that these churches fell into for the most part. All right, so a uh, little bit of background for the, the city of Thyatira. Uh, the reason for the background is not just adding some interesting historical stuff, to our study, but because the Lord chose to speak to each one of these churches in the context of their historic and cultural circumstance. He chose to speak directly to them about things that they were well familiar with, that were a big part of their life in the world that they lived in, in the culture that they lived in. So uh, in terms of Thyatira, remember we're dealing with all seven of these churches were in a circular arrangement. It was a postal route of, of a Roman postal service. And starting with the um, church in Ephesus and working its way through the final church, which we're not too yet Laodicea, each one of these was along that postal route. So Thyatira was between Pergamum and Sardis, the two churches that uh, we've, we've studied before and are about to study next. Uh, the city itself was in a a valley. Uh, it was a, a kind of a, a lush, fertile, um, agriculturally based valley called the Lycus Valley. Um, the one thing that was uh, concerning for the city, and it had been an issue for them historically, was there was no natural fortification, meaning it's just in a, in a flat land. I could the, the city could theoretically by an enemy be attacked from any direction. I think that's somewhat significant because as we're going to see uh, and you probably noticed as I read through, uh, the church in this city was under attack in a very significant way. So the Lord is speaking to them about how to fortify themselves from such attacks. And um, the big part of the life of the city was it was, a, it was on a trade route. So there was lots and lots of business that was being done in the city of Thyatira. And the business practices were organized and um, they were carried out according to trade guilds. Now, this is something that's not so much a part of our world today and our business environment today, uh, but it was huge in the business environment of that day. So each uh, area of expertise would organize so that you would have, uh, like they had a big cloth trade in the city of Thyatira and a particular kind of cloth, a purple cloth 
which was um, highly valued throughout the Roman Empire. And the dye for this cloth was created and uh, carried out here in this particular city. So there was a whole trade guild of those that were involved in this cloth business. Another big business in the the city was uh, the bronze business. So they made... They made equipment for um, armies. Uh, they sold um, armaments, you know, armors for both the, uh, the midsection and the, the legs uh, to protect the soldiers in battle. Uh, so th- for each one of these, um, these business opportunities, there were these trade guilds that were organized around them. And uh, what was interesting about the trade guilds was not just that they did business based upon their organization, but there was a religious element to each one of these trade guilds. So each trade guild was dedicated to a particular god or goddess of the Greek and Roman um, uh, religious system. And uh, for the meetings, when you would come together, if you were going to be part of this business organization, you would have regular meetings. They might meet together like once a week. And they would have a feast together. And as part of the feast, uh, the people that were part of the guild were, were um, expected to profess their allegiance, not just to the guild, but to the god or goddesses that were honored by that guild. And then they were expected to participate in the activity of the guild. And generally speaking, for most of these guilds, what would happen is they would have a... Um, they would have a lavish feast where lots and lots of food would be provided by the guild itself because you would have to pay dues to the guild. And as part of the feast, it would, it would often kind of uh, deteriorate into a, um, f- you know, a food indulgence slash sexual activity kind of evening. And um, this was just considered part of, this is, this is our society, this is our culture, this is what we do in order to enjoy our prosperity. And uh, if you're going to be part of us, and if you're going to do business with us, you're going to participate in that. So now, if you can imagine you're a believer, you've come to know the Lord, the gospel has changed your life, it's changed your heart, and yet you are still doing business in this city. Maybe you've, um, maybe you've learned the, the purple cloth business and, and that's what you do for a living. Or maybe you, you're part of the bronze making armament business and now it's time for the, the local guild meeting to take place and you would be expected to show up. If you didn't show up for very many meetings in a row, uh, the guild would come looking for you and find out what's going on, why aren't you participating in our activities? And it would be considered um, a threat to continued membership in the guild. So if you're a believer and you decide, okay, I I can't really participate in this guild anymore uh, because of the spiritual compromises that would be involved in me uh, being part of such a thing, um, what would be the end result would be in losing your guild membership, you lose the right to do business. You, you would lose your job, you would lose your position. If you owned a business, you would lose the ability to buy and sell with other guild members, which had kind of a corner on the market of that particular area of the economy. All right, so that's some of the background. In terms of the primary gods that were worshipped in the city of Thyatira, the the primary god was Apollo, who was known as the sun god, and we're talking about like the sun in the sky, and he was was identified and considered to be the, the son of Zeus, the chief of the gods, and they also, of course, were blending in now because of the Roman Empire, emperor worship, and um, in, order to, in order to make it work with their honoring of Apollo, they identified uh, in this area and in this city in particular, they identified the emperor as Apollo incarnate. So the emperor in Rome was considered to be the god Apollo who has now become a human being. So this is the background of you're, you're part of the church, you're living in Thyatira, this is the culture, this is the social circumstance, and now the Lord is going to speak to the church. So this is how 
he introduces himself. And remember, I've mentioned in each one of these seven letters that the Lord, even though these churches know who the Lord is, he chooses to reintroduce himself to each one of these seven churches in their own individual way. And how he focuses their attention on him is a clue to what they're dealing with and the spiritual circumstance that they find themselves in. So in verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So there's three elements of the Lord's introduction to the church of himself. First, he wants to remind them that he is the son of God. Now, this is the only place in the seven letters where he names himself in that way. And it's purposeful and it's intentional and it has to do, again, with their circumstance. Because the city was given over to the worship of the son of Zeus, Apollo. And so Jesus reintroduces himself to the church in Thyatira by declaring, no, Apollo, of course, is not the true son of the true God. I am the son of the one and only true and living God. And so right up front, the Lord is reminding the church that if you're going to, if you're going to live in allegiance to the Lord Jesus, you're going to be set in a circumstance where your life is at the core level at odds with the culture and the society in which you live and which surrounds you. And that is going to inevitably and unavoidably place you in circumstances of confrontation, spiritual confrontation with a contrary culture that surrounds. Second, the Lord uh, wants them to know that he is the one who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. These images, like the other introductory images from the other letters, are taken from the vision. In fact, look back uh, for just a moment in, um, in chapter 1. And this is the vision where the Lord first revealed himself to John. And we're reading now at the end of verse 14. As John sees Jesus in his resurrected and ascended glory, he observes that his eyes were like a flame of fire and his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. So Jesus takes these two elements and reminds the church in Thyatira that this is who he is. So what does it mean that Jesus is the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire? This has to do with the element that is true for all seven of the letters, but the Lord really wants to remind the Thyatiran church of this truth, and that is the eyes of the Lord like a flame of fire have to do with his evaluation, his observation of what's going on in the life of the church that he's addressing. But the fact that his eyes are fiery eyes is, fire is a, in scripture, it's a, a purifying element. It's an element where as you introduce uh, various things into the fire, if they're, if they're true and lasting, they'll survive the fire. And if they're, if, they're, um, if they're temporary and if they have no lasting eternal value, they'll be burned up and reduced to ash. And so his eyes like a flame of fire, meaning he's, he's looking at the church. He's looking at their circumstances. He's evaluating where they're at. He's evaluating their priorities, their patterns, their behaviors. And he is evaluating with a purifying purpose for them. His feet like burnished bronze. This is, uh, I, I don't want to go into all of the details of this other than to say this is a, this is a judgment Im- imagery. And it has to do with the, in this particular case, the bronze guild that was so prominent in the city of Thyatira, uh, making these armaments for a military circumstance. And here the Lord wants to remind them that I am the one who is equipped with bronze feet, meaning he is taking his stance in a warfare warrior circumstance or context because what's going on here in this city is there is this spiritual friction between the truth 
of who he is and what he's accomplished in the lives of those that he has saved and then the surrounding culture and society that is attempting to um, kind of disintegrate the foundation of the Lord's saving work in their life. And so he is taking his stand as a warrior in order to bring judgment where judgment is most needed. Now, uh, the Lord first, before he gets to what needs correction in the church, follows the same pattern that he did in the previous letters that we studied. He first uh, speaks words of encouragement. These are the filling words of filling up the lamps with the needed oil of his encouragement where there is things that can be encouraged. So his encouraging words start in verse 19. In fact, uh, it's completely contained in verse 19. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. The first detail, this is a a parallel to the other letters as well. Uh, Just these two little words again, I know. Uh, The Lord is observing the church, and he knows fully what's actually going on with the church. The Lord's not some uh, absentee landlord in relationship to the church. He is very much engaged, very much involved, very observant, and knows exactly what they're dealing with and what they're going through. And I, I just really love what he has to say to them in verse 19. I mean, starting in verse 20, we've already read through it. There is a big problem in the church, but the life of the church is not entirely defined by the big problem. I know your works. Your love, this is agape love. That would most likely have to do both with their love for him and their love for one another. Your faith. So here he's not speaking a single critical word about the nature of their faith. So we can confidently say this was a church full of people who had true and saving faith in their hearts. Their service, obviously, kingdom service to the Lord, and their patient endurance. Patient endurance has to do with dealing with uh, the difficulties and the challenges that come with living the Christian life in the midst of a culture that is set in spiritual opposition to the work of the Lord in saving us. And then this last description at the end of verse 19, and that your latter works exceed the first. What does that tell us about the church? They were, they were active and they were involved in, in their service to the king, but they were growing in their service. This was a good and healthy church in many ways. Uh, if we only had verse 19 as a description, and then we could pick and choose and say, you know, what would it be like if we heard the Lord speak verse 19 to this church? You know, what a, what a wonderful thing it would be to have the confidence that the Lord would look at Tree of Life and say, I know your works, your agape love, your saving faith, your service, your patient endurance, and that you're growing in your works. The works you've done just recently are even greater than you work, the works you did when, when the church was brand new. What a wonderful testimony coming from the Lord as he sees clearly and evaluates the life of the church. So what I want us to understand before we move into verse 20 in the rest of the letter, which is a corrective element and a very significant, serious one, is that we're dealing with a true church and that even true churches are not necessarily perfect churches. Even true churches can have significant issues and in this case, a a, a real glaring flaw that if unaddressed, could be significantly problematic for the life of the church in the future. Certainly was problematic at the present time. But this is a true church filled for the most part with true believers. Now verse 20 and beyond is where the Lord moves from commending the church to exhorting the church. And then he's going to move after exhorting the church to to actually warning the church. But let's look at the exhortation first. Starting in verse 20. But I have this against you, which tells us that from the Lord's evaluation, from the Lord's perspective, 
there was only one real problem going on in the church. And, you know, I've said, I've said something along these lines in one of the previous letters, but, you know, I, I could wish that, that this church only had one significant problem. But if I did wish for one significant problem, I would wish it not be this one. Because this is a really, really serious problem. I have this against you. And again, I think I mentioned this as well. I, would, I just don't ever want to hear the Lord having to speak to this church to say, I have this against you. I mean, it's one thing for the Lord to speak to the church and say, I have a concern in my heart for you or about you. But to say, I have this against you means now the Lord, with all of the good things that are described and accepted and, and praiseworthy in verse 19, the Lord has one issue in his heart against the church in Thyatira that's so significant that it's, as far as this one issue is concerned, the Lord and the church are on two different sides of a conflict. There's a spiritual warfare that's ongoing. And in this one issue, in this one category, the Lord and the church are on different sides of the warfare. And if you're fighting the Lord in a spiritual warfare, who's going to lose that side of the battle? But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. All right, so... The problem for this church, and I'm calling this as I've, I've characterized each one of these churches with a short title, if you ever uh, look to find these messages on Sermon Audio later, I'm calling this message a tolerant church. And ordinarily, we might think in terms of, especially with all that our society and culture that surrounds us today emphasizes in terms of what are the the most important qualities a church could possibly have. Uh, You might mention love, but in terms of what our culture says churches should have, the one thing that they would want to see in the church more than any other quality is tolerance. And this was a very tolerant church in relationship to issues that were coming into the church from the surrounding society and culture around it. There's only one problem. That tolerance that was characterizing the life of the church was the one issue that the Lord said, I have this against you. I have this against you that you're tolerant. That you're tolerating, and and just to be clear in our definition, let me define the word tolerate here. Uh, Tolerate means to permit without resistance what should never be permitted. So there are the the lesson, the the core lesson to learn before we get into all the details of who Jezebel was, and I'll address that in a moment, and what she was actually doing in her influence in the church, is that there are some things from the Lord's perspective that the church should never tolerate in the life of the church. See, it's one thing for a church to be set in the midst of a corrupt surrounding society and culture. In fact, the Lord, the the basic biblical principle is that the Lord has placed us in the world, but we're not to be of the world, right? So this is the balance point that the church is always seeking through all the generations of church history. And it's not easy to find that balance point. And, um, you know, good churches have struggled and wavered on, the, you know, what it, where exactly that balance point is, is to be uh, identified. But the idea is from our just core perspective of what the Lord is communicating here is that the Lord has things that in his mind, in his heart, should never be tolerated, not in the culture, but in the church, which is within the culture and in near proximity to the culture. The Lord is not saying in this letter, I have this against you that you're tolerating the trade guild meetings and all of the 
the, the incredibly morally and spiritually corrupt activities that are taking place in those trade guild meetings. The Lord is not correcting them for tolerating those meetings. He's correcting them for tolerating an influence within the church that is teaching and seducing the church to embrace that kind of activity as part of how we interact with the world, how we reach the world, how we live in peace with the surrounding society and culture. So let's talk for a moment about Jezebel and um, what is being described about her. First and foremost, the, the name is, I, I, I'm like 100% certain of this, there was no actual woman named Jezebel in the, in the Thyatiran church. This is a symbolic name. I think there likely was a single woman who was uh, being identified by the Lord by the name Jezebel, but who knows what her actual and real name was. The Lord didn't have to name her. It would have been obvious to the church who was being described in the way that the Lord is describing Jezebel here. Why did he choose the name Jezebel, though, as a, as a symbolic description of this woman's activity within the church? Well, there's, of course, a famous, a single famous Jezebel in Old Covenant history, Old Testament history. And it's from all the way back in the days of Elijah the prophet. And Elijah uh, was a, uh, a prophet of the Lord who served the Lord in a very critically important time of Israel's history. It was a time when the nation had been, for the most part, corrupted from the inside out. And the Lord had sent Elijah to call the nation back to the Lord. And the corruption was the king who lived at that time was a, 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 a man of weak character. His name was Ahab. And he had a wife named Jezebel who he had taken against the laws of God from a surrounding nation. She was the princess, the daughter of a, of a foreign king who uh, worshipped uh, the god Baal, who was a, uh, a false idolatrous god. And when they married, she brought her religion into the life of the palace, which then spread to the life of the nation because the palace, the royal palace in Israel, of course, was the most influential household in the entire nation. And uh, there was this, this um, abominable mixture that was taking place of the worship of Yahweh, the worship of the one true God, mixed with the honor and worship of Baal. And these two things were kind of, kind of mixed together in an unholy mixture. And so the Lord takes that story and all that's contained within that story, symbolized by the name of the, the foreign queen who had introduced this idolatrous mixture to Israel and uses her as a symbol to characterize the influential ministry of one prominent woman within the church in Thyatira. Now this woman um, was clearly not in a pastoral role she was not one of the elders of the church. She was not a pastor in the church of Thyatira, but she was recognized as a prophetess of the Lord, not because she actually was a prophetess of the Lord, but she called herself a prophetess and was so convincing in her self-identification that many within the church apparently bought into the idea that this woman was actually speaking for the Lord. And what was the essence of her prophetic message to the church in Thyatira? She was teaching and seducing the true believers in Thyatira to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, this kind of sounds almost like it's unbelievable. Can you imagine if we had a guest speaker and, you know, it happened to be a woman and she was speaking to the church today and the essence of her message was, it's good for you to uh, practice sexual immorality. How many of you would be convinced by that? How many of you would be, oh yeah, she said we should practice sexual immorality, so we just should. It, it just sounds like an unbelievable conclusion. But what was happening here was this had to do with the circumstance of the trade guilds. So because the trade guild circumstance involved eating food sacrificed to the idol of the guild and those meetings devolved on a, 
on a weekly basis into sexual promiscuity at the guild meetings themselves. And it was an accepted part of guild life and the cultural uh, social practices of the day. Uh, She was apparently convincing the church that in order to continue to do business in the city, that, you know, it's kind of like... um, kind of twisting the principle Paul had taught to the Roman church, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, you know, kind of uh, as much as you can adopt cultural practices so that you don't seem like you're entirely a spiritual oddball and you have some platform of commonality that you can then interact with the culture and the society and have communication with them and have interaction with them because we are called to be even though we're not of the world we're called to be in the world in the sense of reaching the world in the sense of representing the lord to the world so apparently what she had done is she had just taken that one step way too far and was influencing the church just go ahead and participate in these guild meetings even the the parts that would seem like they're not going to be pleasing to the Lord, but it's all for a good purpose because it's going to enable us to be a, a, a more influential part of Thyatira society, and it's going to allow us the opportunity to reach more people for the Lord. And so under the guise of this seductive teaching, the church was, some of them, not all of them, not entirely, but the church was buying into it to some, to some extent or to some part. Now, this brings us to a shift in the Lord from uh, exhortation to warning. Uh, and, you know, I should, I should mention this as well. Um, all of this is meant to be for us. Uh, he was ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Could such a thing ever possibly happen in church life today? Could, you know, could, I mean, we don't have guild meetings that we are needing to attend. So, you know, that kind of super obvious stuff is not a threat to us. It's not a danger to us. But what we're dealing with are dangers that have to do, and this is really the core, the essence of the problem in Thyatira, of adopting culture standards in place of the standards of scripture and accepting the morality of the culture into the morality standards of the church. Now, uh, just yesterday, as I was finishing up my preparation for the message today, I get you know tons and tons of emails from various Christian ministries, and I get these Christian newsletters just telling me what's going on in the wider body of Christ. I'm just going to use this one example, and it's just a single example. There are so many others. I wish this was you know, the, the lone exception, but it's not. Um, how many of you have ever heard the name Andy Stanley? He's a prominent pastor on the East Coast. Uh, I think it's North Carolina. He's the pastor of a large and significant church. It's a mega church called North Point Church. Oh, it's in Georgia. North Point Church in Georgia. And he's the son of a man that recently went to be with the Lord, who served the Lord faithfully as a, a Baptist a pastor and teacher of God's word. He was on TV for many, many years. Uh, how many of you are familiar with Charles Stanley and his ministry? Yeah. So Andy Stanley is his, his uh, number one son, and he, he was kind of raised in the ministry under Charles and, and uh, then branched out and started his own church. And again, it's developed into a mega church. I, I just got a notification that Andy Stanley was hosting a conference. Uh, you, you don't have to be concerned. I'm not going to be attending the conference. Uh, but he's inviting people uh, from all over the world to attend the conference. And it's going to be happening this week. And it's a conference which the essence of the conference is going to be affirming the LGBTQTIA plus. And, you know, and I, don't, I don't even know if I got all the, uh, the, the vowels and the consonants right. But um, it, it's basically a conference where the three prominent speakers at the conference... Andy Stanley is going to be one of the speakers, but the three prominent speakers, one of them is a, a, a prominent homosexual who claims to be involved in Christian ministry. Another one is uh, someone who essentially is teaching the church to fully embrace uh, this lifestyle or these various lifestyles nowadays. Um, 
and uh, to accept them as part of the life of the church and full-fledged members of the church without any any concern or issues about their lifestyle choices. So this whole conference is taking place this week at uh, North Point Church. Uh, feel free to uh, you know go Google it and, and find out for yourself. And um, it's not just you know that they were the, the point of the conference is okay. Let's let's reexamine these things from a biblical perspective. The point of the conference, in terms of who the primary speakers are, is to convince as a large and influential church that many churches look to as you know whatever Andy Stanley says is good is what's good with me because you know he's he's far more successful than I am as a pastor. So I want to follow his footsteps. I want to I want to follow his example. So what we're dealing with here is, and, and that's just one category. The, the issue is we live in a culture and the culture is set in a completely different standard of morality than the word of God represents and the church is to represent. And the issue is how much is the church influencing the culture versus how much the culture is influencing the church. And, you know, the, the issues have to do with the church's standards on fornication, the church's standards on adultery, the church's standards on homosexuality, the church's standards now on the whole upswing in the transgenderism uh, movement and all that's involved in that, and many other things besides that. The issue is, what standards are we going to apply and what standards are we going to embrace and are we living according to the ways and the standards of the world or are we living according to the ways and standards of God's word and the Lord himself? All right, so from this point, let's look at what the Lord has to say to the church in this circumstance. And we're now up to verse 21. In light of the influential ministry of the prophetess Jezebel, teaching and seducing the church to uh, embrace the, the immoral practices of the surrounding culture. This is what the Lord said. I gave her time to repent. Now, I, I do love this about the Lord. Can you imagine this? This is a woman that is threatening the spiritual welfare of the entire church. And the Lord did not immediately just judge her. She deserved judgment. She needs to be judged. And her influence needs to, be, needs to be cut out from the church like a cancer cut out from a, a, an otherwise healthy body. Because why do we cut out cancers or, or deal with them in such severe ways? You know, chemi- chemical treatments and radiation treatments and, and, and in some cases, you know, actual surgery to remove parts. Why do we do that? Because if, if we fail to do that, cancer by its very nature spreads. It, it never remains localized. It grows and it spreads and it will eventually threaten the entire body. But even with the severe threat that this woman's ministry represents, the Lord graciously and patiently gave her time to repent, which means that there were ways that the Lord was speaking to her and dealing with her that was calling her attention to the fact that what she was doing was was unhealthy at, at best and evil at worst and was something that the Lord did not want to continue as an influence in his church. And yet her response to the Lord's efforts to call her attention to repentance was, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So she wasn't just teaching the church um, to be involved in the guild meetings in the way that um, I've described. She was herself participating in them in that way. And what you have here is the, the clarity of a, a stubborn heart, a hardened heart, a heart set in its sinful ways a heart that refuses any longer to listen to the Lord. And when you reach a point where you refuse to listen to the Lord, then there's only at that point the the need for uh, coming judgment. And so verse 22, the Lord begins to speak now as 
a needed judge for the church. Behold, and this is not, what he's about to say is not, I'm looking over my options. You know, I, I want to be as gentle as I possibly can. And, you know, maybe I'll do this, maybe I'll do that. Let me, let me float some possibilities by you guys and see what you think. The Lord is now describing what will happen next. And it's inevitable, it's unavoidable. The church can't stop it. Jezebel herself won't be able to stop it. This is what is going to happen next. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. Now, what does that mean? Throw her onto a sickbed. The word throw here is, is kind of a violent word. It doesn't mean I'm going to gently lead her to a sickbed. It means I'm going to pick her up and I'm going to throw her onto this bed. And the throw is going to be so forceful that she's going to remain on that sickbed. She's not going to easily or quickly get up from it. What are we talking about a sickbed? She's going to get sick. And it's going to be some kind of significant or severe sickness. I know there are many times in my walk with the Lord where the Lord wanted to get my attention and he used physical illness in order to arrest my attention. And it is interesting to me how much quicker I am to listen carefully to what the Lord might be saying to me when I'm in a circumstance that's unfavorable to me compared to when everything is just going smooth and exactly the way I want it to go. But here the Lord is going to throw her onto a sickbed and what is the implication? This is a circumstance that she's most likely not going to recover from because in all of the descriptions that are going to follow, there is nothing that indicates she's ever going to get up off of this sickbed. And because her heart is already hardened toward the Lord, that would have been her only avenue of escape. But unless her heart softens and unless her heart turns, she is going to remain in that circumstance. But the Lord broadens out the judgment and it's not just going to be the Lord's going to deal with this one woman in the church. Behold, I will throw her under a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her. Now, is the Lord describing here men in the church actually committing adultery with her? Possibly, maybe, but most likely if they were, it was in the context of things that were happening in these guild meetings during these feasts that they would have, again, that would kind of devolve into sexual immorality. So as people would get drunk and the evening would go on. So possibly there was some actual activity there, but that's the point is participating with her in this uh, full-on participation in the guild meeting debauchery. Those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, meaning, and I don't think here the focus is on what we have studied before about the great tribulation, but simply that the Lord is going to create problems for those that participate in her kind of spiritual and moral compromise. And then there is an allowance, though, for those that are being influenced by her, and the allowance is this, unless they repent of her works. She's been given the opportunity and she's refused. Now the Lord is giving the same patient and gracious opportunity to those that have been influenced by her teaching and seduced by her influence. Verse 23, and I will strike her children dead. Most likely this is not in reference to her physical and actual family children. Most likely this is in reference to those that are following her teaching now. The children of a teacher are those that are following that teacher's influence and um, living out the principles that they're being taught by that teacher. But I do want you to notice in verse 23, what is the degree of severity of the Lord's judgment? How deep does it go? It goes to the point of death. And we're not talking here about some kind of spiritual death. We're talking about actual physical death. There's going to be this level of severe consequence, which tells us something about how seriously the Lord takes this particular compromise that's going on within the church. Now, he's, he said, I'm going to throw her onto a sickbed. I'm going to deal by throwing into great tribulation with the same kind of forceful throwing those that are under his, her influence. 
and those that follow her teaching, I'm going to strike dead. And the result of all of this is all the churches, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Um, this was a completely different kind of day that we live in today. Like I, I was telling you about a conference that Andy Stanley's church is going to be hosting in, in Georgia. You know, I get an email telling me about that. And so we have like this instant kind of communication. Keep in mind, there were, you know, there was no, there was no free and easy dissemination of news, no internet, no cell phones. How, you know, all the churches, which churches is he talking about? Here, most likely the other six churches of this series of seven churches that are all connected by this Roman postal route. He, he's saying, I'm going to do something so significant, so severe in the circumstances of this, this corrupting influence in the church that word is going to travel from this church to the others so that everyone can hear what I've done. Everyone can learn. I'm going to make her and her followers an object lesson. And I'm going to teach all of the churches about who I really am through the circumstance of judgment that I'm about to bring on this one influence within this one unhealthy church situation. Now, I had so many thoughts when I reached this point in my study. Uh, First, the first thought I had was, how many churches today, and I don't want to limit it just to the churches in our country, but let's just start there. The churches in our country, the United States of America. How many churches could even conceive that the, the one true and living Lord would do such a thing as what he's describing here? There are a lot of churches that couldn't even imagine Jesus doing such a thing. Throwing a one significantly influential in a, in a spiritually corrupt way, one person onto a sickbed that they may never recover from, um, throwing those that are, that are participating with her into circumstances of great tribulation, and then those that follow her and committed to her teaching will actually be having their lives ended prematurely by the Lord of the church because they refuse, like she refused, to repent of this moral and spiritual compromise with the surrounding culture. How many churches could even fathom that this is who the Lord actually is? It's just not a popular message. It's not one you'll often hear. You tune into the churches that are on television or on the radio and many of them that are on the internet. You know, just, I've never ever once heard this emphasis being made. And I've been walking with the Lord for over 40 years now. I've listened to a lot of preaching. I've listened to a lot of teaching. The idea is here that the Lord is a Lord of, yes, love and graciousness and kindness and goodness and meekness and all of those wonderful qualities that we so readily associate with him. But he is also a God of holiness. He's a God who calls his people to be as holy as he is. And when we are significantly compromising that holiness in a way that offends him and his holy nature, he will step in and he will intervene and he will act. And he will act in whatever degree of severity is required by the circumstance. Again, if you have a cancer in your body, you go and you get it evaluated and then you just decide based upon the input of those that are, are, are uh, educated to, to deal with such things and trained to deal with such things, whatever it takes to eliminate the cancer in the body is what we're going to do in order to have the hope of a healthy cancer-free body at the end of the process. 
And this represented a spiritual cancer within the life of the church that the Lord was not going to allow to continue. Now, he says in verse 24, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The idea here is, of course, that not everyone in the church was under this influence. And I'm I'm just trying to put myself in their shoes for a moment and think in terms of there are those within the church that are they're fully buying into this influence and those that recognize it's evil and wrong and off base. And so there was this division within the church. And the church does, the Lord doesn't want his church to be divided, but until this cancer is dealt with, what he says to those that are uninfluenced by it and who are in a healthy place, he says, just hold on. It's interesting, he doesn't even require them to confront the others because it's reached a point now where the Lord is doing the confronting himself. The Lord has taken this onto his own shoulders. And for those that are remaining faithful, he just says, just hold on, remain faithful, don't let go of the, the, the grip that you have on the true gospel and the true standards of righteousness and holiness. Hold fast until I come. And then in verse 26, the Lord ends like he does with all of the churches. He ends with words that we're calling uh, words of promise, words of hope for the future, words of the Lord's encouragement of those that um, are characterized as conquerors. And as I've described in the other letters, the conquerors here are not those that are um, conquering the culture around them. They're not those that are conquering their fellow members in the church that are off base. They're conquering by remaining true and faithful to the Lord. They're conquering by not compromising. They're conquering by walking in holiness and in true righteousness. He says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. This is a quote and a reference back to Psalm 2. I wish I had time to take you back to Psalm 2, but for those who are taking notes, uh, go back and read the connection. It's a messianic psalm. It's a psalm of the promise of what would happen when the Lord himself would come, the Son of God would come, and how the Lord would reward, God the Father would reward his Son with authority over the nations. Now, at this point, that has already taken place. Jesus has died on the cross. He's risen again from the dead. He's ascended back to heaven and he is seated upon the throne of God in heaven and he has begun to rule over the nations of the earth. It's a hidden rule at this point in history. It's a rule that's not obvious to the surrounding culture and society, but the Lord is encouraging their hearts to say, if you remain faithful, you are going to participate in my increasing rule over the culture and the society in which I have placed you. That is a victory that is as sure and as certain as Christ's victory. And then the last promise is, and I will give him the morning star. Let's fast forward to understand this to the very end of the book of Revelation, chapter 22. And I'll read this as... uh, The worship team is getting ready for our final song. Revelation 22. This is how the Lord chooses to end the whole letter to the book of Revelation and explains to us the promise that he makes to the faithful ones in Thyatira. 22.16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now in this final portion at the end of the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus identifies himself with the bright morning star. And to those faithful ones that remain faithful to the Lord in the letter to the Thyatiran church, the Lord promises, if you remain faithful, I will give you the bright morning star. What is he promising? He's saying, I will give you myself. 
the greatest the 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 greatest promise and hope for the future is that by remaining true and faithful to the Lord, to his word, and to his ways, even in the midst of a surrounding corrupt culture that has creeped into the life of the church itself, if you will remain faithful to the Lord, he promises to give you himself in the fullness of a relationship that we can only describe as a covenant marriage and all the blessings that come with that in our true relationship with him. Let's, uh, let's sing one last worship song.